welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Lizzie Borden. The name has been etched into the American consciousness through countless books, movies, even a heavy metal band, and a haunting and disturbing children's rhyme, which you can hear on playgrounds to this very day. She was the first modern American psycho, a woman of class and privilege who caved her parents' heads in with an axe. Theories of her guilt or innocence of the vicious and brutal murders abound. Titillating tales of lesbian affairs, incestual sex, and bloody killings committed in the nude. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we break it all down for you. The strange Borden family, their weird house, the details of the gruesome murders, and all the wild conspiracy theories explored and explained. So buckle up into the murder coaster, for off we go with the tale of Lizzie Borden. Let's begin. On Thursday, August 4th, 1892, Fall River, Massachusetts police were called to investigate, quote, some kind of stabbing row, end quote, at 92 Second Street, the modest home of businessman Andrew Borden, one of the richest and most respected men in Fall River, the third largest city in the state at the time. There wasn't much staff available at the police station at the time as most of the police force were off in Rhode Island at the annual police clam bake at Rocky Point Amusement Park. And if you want the creepy and haunted history of Rocky Point Park, check out episode 19, Amusement Park Murder and Terror, where we get all into it. So since all the experienced cops were at the clam bake in Rhode Island, an inexperienced policeman named Officer Allen was sent to investigate. He would be shaken to his core by what he saw when he entered the house. A neighborhood doctor met Officer Allen at the door and ushered him inside. The youngest daughter of the family, Lizzie, who had discovered the body, sat in a rocking chair, in an almost catatonic state, being cared for by neighbors and friends who sponged her forehead. The eldest daughter, Emma, was away on a trip to visit friends. Doctor directed the policeman to the sitting room of the house. There, lying on the sofa, was the body of Andrew Borden, posed as if taking a nap, his head resting on a cushion, his legs, too long to lay across the entire sofa, sprawled off onto the floor. The exposed side of his face was completely mutilated and caved in, the wounds so deep they shattered the skull and reached the brain, nearly severing his head in two, leaving basically an empty cavity. 
The nose had been severed, one eye grotesquely dangled from the pulp of bone, blood, and brain, sliced in half by whatever instrument had delivered the devastating blows. The sofa was so drenched in blood that it dripped from the slick horsehair cushions and onto the rug below. The wall, too, was spattered in blood. The inexperienced officer was so shaken by the horrific sight that he immediately fled the scene, saying he must put in his report. He just jumped up and bolted. When later asked for a description of the body, the policeman could only mutter, quote, I noticed how small his ankles were compared to the size of his feet. The shaken Officer Allen soon returned, accompanied by three other policemen, Officers Doherty, Wixon, and Mollet, to hear that another body had been discovered upstairs, Abby, the wife of Andrew. Her head, too, had been bludgeoned in. Upon hearing this, Officer Allen requested to be sent back to headquarters and relieved from the case. His request was approved, and he quickly fled the scene yet again. The officers were led upstairs where the body of Abby Borden lay in the guest room, face down between the bed and bureau, hands tucked in beneath her in a puddle of blood. The back of her head was a bloody pulp, the skull completely shattered, her brains oozing out into her dark hair. Lizzie, who was now lying on the sofa in the dining room, was questioned. Her answers were curt and rather strange and contradictory, but she appeared in a state of shock, pale as a ghost, and dazed. Officer Wixon, who was a Civil War veteran and had seen his share of bloodshed and carnage, noticed that Andrew's blood was still leaking out, fresh and bright, meaning he'd only been murdered within the last half hour, while Abby's was ropey and coagulated, suggesting she'd been murdered at least an hour before Andrew, meaning the murderer must have been lurking in the house for over an hour, but neither Lizzie nor her maid Maggie had seen a soul. And it was a strange house. There were no hallways. Each room simply led to another room meaning to reach the back bedroom, you had to go through another bedroom. And nearly all bedrooms interconnected in one way or another. Also, because of the layout, it was impossible to get from either the back door or the front door to the stairs, unobserved by anyone on the first floor. How had the killer gotten in and out unnoticed? And how had these brutal crimes been committed without anyone hearing a thing, somehow silently? It was a complete mystery. The front door had been bolted shut from the inside, and the maid had been in the back of the house washing the windows, where she'd been seen by many neighbors. An uncle had been staying with the family, but he was out on town during the time of the murders, his whereabouts fully corroborated. The only one in the house was Lizzie, though she claimed she'd been in the barn. None of it made any sense. Lizzie couldn't have done it. She was fully inspected and didn't have a drop of blood on her, which the killer surely would after the savage attacks. Not to mention, how could a small, diminutive, church-going woman commit such brutal and savage attacks? Did she even have the strength to do such a thing? Hack not one, but two people to death? One a grown man over six feet tall? 
as has been stipulated by many true crime writers, most elegantly by Bill James in his book Popular Crime, quote, it is nearly impossible to see how Lizzie Borden could have committed this crime. It is also nearly impossible to see how anyone but Lizzie Borden could have committed this crime, end quote. But if it wasn't Lizzie, then who could have done it? This is a question we are still asking to this day. Theories abound from the scientific, like that Lizzie was suffering from a rare form of epilepsy that would put her into a trance, unaware of her actions and unable to remember the afterwards, to the sensational, like Lizzie and her father were having an incestuous relationship, or that Lizzie was a lesbian and having an affair with the maid, or that Lizzie committed the murders naked in order to not get blood on her clothing. There's been countless books and films. The most recent in 2018, a Lizzie with Chloe Savini and Kristen Stewart put forth nearly every single wild theory. Well, we're going to go over each and every one of them and then give you our own thoughts. So let's get into it. Part one, the Bordens. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born July 19, 1860, to Andrew Jackson Borden and Sarah Borden. Ironically, the Borden family crest is a lion bearing a battle axe. Lizzie was the baby of the family. Her older sister Emma was nine years old at the time of her birth. Sadly, like many families at the time, the Bordens suffered many tragedies. Another daughter, Alice, died at just two years old, two years before Lizzie was born. And then, when Lizzie herself was only two years old, her mother became extremely ill from uterine congestion and a spinal infection, and eventually died as well. At two years old, Lizzie was left without a mother. On her deathbed, Sarah Borden made her eldest daughter, Emma, promise to provide, care for, and be a mother to little Lizzie something she would strive to do, taking the role seriously. On June 6, 1865, when Lizzie was five years old, her father Andrew remarried a 37-year-old widow who had children of her own, named Abby Durfee Gray. It was said to have been a passionless affair, one of convenience, as Andrew needed a wife and mother for his two daughters, and Abby was in desperate financial straits being a widow. Some even saw it as an act of charity. Though little Lizzie now had a new mother, it is said she always looked to her sister Emma to fill that role. After all, Emma had sworn on Sarah's deathbed to be a mother to Lizzie. The late 1800s was a time that would be defined by Mark Twain as the Gilded Age, a time of economic boom with factories churning out textiles, railroads going up everywhere, coal mining flourishing. For the first time, the United States jumped to the lead in industrialization ahead of Britain. The first transcontinental railroad opened, and while before it had taken six months of hard travel to go from New York City to San Francisco, California, now it could be done in just six days. Lizzie's father was a prime example of this moment in time. The son of a fishmonger, he'd struggled financially, working as a small-town undertaker, but eventually prospered when he began to manufacture caskets. 
known for being extremely thrifty, even miserly, taking the maxims, a penny saved is a penny earned, and waste not, want not, to extremes. Locals joked that he would cut the feet off the corpses to save money by constructing smaller caskets. The town was going through a boom period, the population nearly tripling, and Andrew made wise investments, putting money in cotton mills, buying up downtown commercial properties as well as rental units, becoming a successful property developer, and eventually president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. Though he rose up the ranks to become one of the wealthiest men in the city, he remained incredibly frugal, while the rest of the wealthy lived in an elite neighborhood known as The Hill, which was separated from the industrial areas of the city, when Andrew chose to relocate from his father's fishmonger cottage on Ferry Street, he bought a semi-modest house right on one of the main thoroughfares. As we said, it was a strange house. No hallways, the rooms opening up into each other, causing the small sitting room to have five doors in it. And the only way to get into Emma's bedroom was to walk through Lizzie's. It was basically two identical tenement railroad flats stacked on top of each other. While indoor plumbing, telephones, and gas lights were common, and even electricity was becoming available, the house only had two faucets, cold water only, one off the rear of the side entry in its own tiny room, and another one in the basement, where the only toilet was inconveniently placed, forcing the family to use chamber pots during the night. And there was no telephone. For light, they used kerosene, and Andrew was known to sit in the dark to save fuel. There was also a little horse barn in the rear of the house that had an outdoor faucet for watering the horse that really wasn't much more than a large shed. Andrew was a tall, gaunt man, lipless and severe, with small black eyes, constantly frowning. He dressed in a black frock coat, prim white shirt, and black string bow tie, wizened and lanky, looking pretty much just like the preacher in Poltergeist 2. He hoarded magazines and odd scraps, used newspaper as toilet paper, and collected the rent from his properties personally because he didn't trust anyone. He also never gave to charity, and while he always dressed extremely somber and properly, it was noted by the community that he wore threadbare ties and, quote, shockingly bad hats, end quote. Though he was one of the richest men in town, he would still gather eggs from his chickens, put them in a basket, and somberly walk down the road trying to sell them. Little Lizzie was said to be a sensitive child, moody, who didn't make a lot of friends and spent a lot of time alone, characteristics she would keep her entire life. She went to Morgan Street School, where she was considered of average intelligence. She loved Orange Sherbert. She is not known to ever have dated any man. As she grew older, Lizzie dedicated herself to charity. She was secretary for the mission, treasurer for the Young Woman's Temperance Union, meaning she considered alcohol a sin, and taught Sunday school to the children of Chinese immigrants. While Andrew was content to remain living by modest means, his daughters were not. They longed for such extravagances as indoor plumbing 
and a telephone, and they thought the house was beneath their station, their father being one of the richest men in the city after all. They believed they should be living up on the hill, the elite neighborhood where all the wealthy made their home, not in a squat house with no hallways. The girls also demanded to dress in the Victorian fashions of the time and tried to give an air of prestige, desperate to keep up appearances. The family did have a live-in servant, though having just one servant was seen as living on a lower scale at the time. She was an Irish Catholic girl named Bridget Sullivan. The Irish were considered of a lower status and often demeaned, as we'll see later. Because the family's last servant girl before this new one had been named Maggie, Lizzie and Emma insisted she be called Maggie as well, as they couldn't be bothered to remember a new name. Again, showing how the Irish were just seen as a tiny step up from livestock. But Lizzie and her father Andrew were said by all, without exception, to have a close and loving relationship. Though known as a miser, he splurged on his daughters, keeping them in fashion and what he considered luxury. To Andrew, just having running water throughout the house was an absolute unnecessary extravagance. When Lizzie graduated high school, she received a class ring, which she gave to her father, asking him to always wear it, which he did, the only jewelry he wore, and something quite flamboyant for a man of his somber attire. Even his pocket watch was plain and silver, not gold and ornate, as was the fashion of the time. He'd be buried with that ring, and some say, this ring points to sinister things. We'll get to that later. But there were definite tensions in the house. As we said, Lizzie's stepmother, Abby, had a daughter from her previous marriage. She was named Bertie. When Bertie and her family fell on extreme financial troubles, faced with no place to live, Andrew gave her $1,500 to secure a house, about $50,000 in today's money. This deeply, deeply angered both Lizzie and Emma, who saw Abby as a gold digger, only interested in their father for money. They were also upset that he gave her all this money when he wouldn't even install proper indoor plumbing or a telephone in their house. Lizzie supposedly confronted Abby about this and said what her father did for her family, he should be doing for his own family as well. Lizzie and Emma wanted a big house on the hill, and felt they were living lower than their station. Why should Emma's child be bought a house of her own? Tensions grew so great that Emma and Lizzie stopped eating meals with Abby. And Lizzie, who'd always called Abby mother, instead just started referring to her as Mrs. Borden. So Lizzie demanded that Andrew buy her and Emma a house, since he had bought one for Abby's daughter. Andrew was steadfast that he would not purchase a home on the hill for his daughters. But in an effort to quell the argument, he said he'd gift them a rental property. Their previous home, the Fishmonger Cottage, which had been divided in half for two rental units. He sold them half of the cottage for one dollar, stating they were free to do whatever they wanted with the rent they earned off the property. I guess they weren't satisfied with being landlords, though, for they ended up selling it back to him for $5,000, a huge amount of money at the time, presumably so they could live lavishly or invest, I don't know. But they came away from it with a big chunk of change. 
perhaps because of the tensions and also probably the blatant racism against the Irish. I personally kind of think Lizzie and Emma were using the term Maggie as a racial slur, honestly. Well, their servant girl, Bridget, had tried to leave the house on several occasions, but Abby would always beg her to stay, at one point giving her a raise so high that she just couldn't refuse. It was a strange household to be sure. Miserly Mr. Scrooge Andrew, his two unwed daughters, now well past marital age, the hated stepmother and disgruntled servant. It's kind of like something out of a Grimm's Brothers story. And things were growing weirder. On June 24th, 1891, Andrew and Abby were out of the house, off in town, leaving Lizzie, Bridget, and Emma at home. When they returned, they saw the house had been robbed. A nail had been jammed in the lock as if it had been used to pick it, though this seemed unlikely. A a nail really wouldn't have worked to pick the lock. There were $80 in cash missing, $30 in gold, jewelry and horse car tickets missing. It was utterly bizarre. A brazen robbery in broad daylight with three people at home in the house. Andrew Borden went to the police and filed a report. The horse car tickets were easily identifiable, and apparently one was later used by Lizzie. When Andrew discovered this, he dropped the police report, telling the cops, quote, you will never catch the real thief, end quote. And no further investigation was conducted. It appears Lizzie committed this crime out of pettiness or anger. She had a full checking account and didn't need the paltry sum of stolen money. Or was she laying the groundwork for further crimes, causing suspicion that the family was being stalked and was not safe? Things grew tenser. Now everyone was paranoid, locking all their doors. But you often needed to go through one bedroom to get to the next. So the whole thing's very bizarre. In July of 1892, about two weeks before the murder, Lizzie and Emma got in a fight with Andrew and Abby and left the house in a huff, staying at a hotel for a while. But they eventually returned. At some point, Lizzie is said to have gone to D.R. Smith Pharmacy, asking to buy hydrogen cyanide from pharmacist Eli Bentz. This is an incredibly powerful poison, and it required a prescription. When asked why she needed it, she said it was to keep the moth eggs off her seal skin coat. Though it's well known that moths don't eat seal skin, and the poison is not used for that purpose anyway. She was refused the poison. But the family, including Bridget, did get incredibly sick. Violently ill, in fact. And there was talk amongst them of poison. They'd all been vomiting in the backyard. And Abby went to her doctor, telling him she feared she and Andrew had, in fact, been poisoned. And Lizzie whispered of the poisoning as well. Although there was an incredible paranoia of being poisoned going on in this strange house, the truth is they had just eaten days-old leftover swordfish the night before. And that was most likely the cause of their sickness. 
<laughs> They'd also been eating the same mutton for days. They'd originally served it Sunday, eating it for all three meals, then ate it for breakfast on Monday, let it sit around all day Tuesday while they ate the old swordfish. Then Wednesday, the day of the murders, they had it for breakfast in a soup. <laughs> so fucking gross. All this stuff, the three-day-old mutton, the swordfish, puking, chamber pots, no hot water, or even a sink in the kitchen. It's fucking really disgusting. I'm not surprised they were all sick. Yeah, I mean, God. The night before the murders, Lizzie went to her friend Alice Russell and said her family was sick and she believed someone was poisoning them. Lizzie also said, quote, remember that break in last year? Maybe that has something to do with this. My father has a lot of enemies. In fact, just last week, he was arguing with someone in the house. I'm afraid someone will do something, end quote. It's getting tense, and to ramp up all the tensions even further, who should show up but that old rascal Uncle John? John Morse. He was the brother of Andrew's first wife and Lizzie and Emma's uncle. He lived out in the wild west of Idaho, but he had business entanglements with Andrew. And Andrew really liked him and saw him as a rugged frontiersman. They invested in livestock together. Uncle John was said to have been scruffy, bearded, always dirty with permanently bloodshot eyes. A fellow who could easily be mistaken for a tramp. He was a butcher by trade, but like Andrew, had done well for himself in this gilded age and had become quite prosperous. Emma, meanwhile, had gone off to the town of Fairhaven to visit friends. And so it was, in the Borden house, the evening of August 3rd, 1892. Part 2. The Murders On Wednesday, August 4th, 1892, Uncle John awoke at dawn, then came down to the sitting room at 6 a.m. to await the rest of the family. Bridget, still nauseous and sick, came down about 15 minutes later, started the stove, and brought in the daily milk. She was soon followed by Abby, who gave the breakfast orders, telling Bridget that since they had a guest in the house, the four-day-old mutton soup was to be accompanied with pancakes. <laughs> uh, I saw a quote that this guy's like, if you need any further intent to murder, look no further than the menu that morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Then Mr. Borden came down with his chamber pot, going through the kitchen with the sloshing pot to throw his night emissions onto the lawn, technically fertilizer, then picking a basket of pears from the tree. It was already growing hot, the summer heat at its zenith that August day. The four of them ate while Lizzie lounged in her room upstairs, and when they were finished, Bridget cleared the table and started washing the dishes. Andrew and John moved outside to discuss business, Bridget observing them, but not hearing what they said as she scrubbed dishes in the tiny sink room attached to the rear of the house. At 8.50, Uncle John left to visit some friends and family, Andrew telling him to be sure to be back for lunch, presumably more mutton. Uh, so Bridget is washing dishes, and Abby is busy feather dusting, which was apparently a compulsive habit of hers. When around nine, Lizzie comes down the stairs. She doesn't feel well, is sick like everyone else, 
and eats half a cookie and a few sips of coffee. Then Abby tells Bridget to wash the windows. Bridget goes outside to fill a pail of water and fetch her cleaning equipment from the barn, pausing to vomit in the grass beside the remains of Andrew's emptied chamber pot. At this time, Andrew leaves for his morning walk, stopping in at the National Union Bank, collecting rent money. On most days, he would be gone all morning, coming back to the house for lunch. But this day, he didn't go to the post office, as was his usual route, and started back home early. So, while Andrew is out on his rounds, the only people in the house are Abby, Lizzie, and Bridget. Interesting, Bridget could not remember what Lizzie was wearing. When Bridget returned with her mop and stepladder to clean the windows, she was surprised to see Lizzie standing at the screen door. Ever paranoid, Lizzie says she's going to lock the screen door while Bridget cleans the windows. As Bridget fetches more water from the barn, she sees another servant girl next door, and the two have a long talk. It is only Lizzie and Abby in the house at this point, and presumably all the doors are locked. At some point, the shutters are closed in the upstairs spare room, which neighbors found odd. Abby went upstairs to make the bed, and it is at this moment that the first murder occurs. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with what is presumed to be a hatchet, which cut her just above her ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 18 more direct hits to the back of her head. There were 19 blows in all, crushing parts of her skull. At some point, the screen door is unlocked again, though Bridget clearly remembered Lizzie saying she was going to lock it. Bridget then comes into the house, locking the screen door behind her, at which point Andrew comes home. It is now 11 a.m. He goes to the side door as usual, but as we said, the screen door was locked. So then he goes to the front door, which has actually three locks on it, and he inserts his key, but he can't get the lock to open and struggles, at which point Bridget hears him and opens the door for him. As she is unlocking the door, she hears Lizzie laughing from upstairs. <laughs> Andrew goes to the sitting room and lays down for a nap, Bridget helping him take off his shoes and put on a pair of slippers. Lizzie comes downstairs to iron handkerchiefs. Bridget, ill and exhausted from washing the windows in the scorching heat, went upstairs to lay down. So Bridget is upstairs, dozing in her room, and she clearly remembers the city hall bell ringing in 11 o'clock. Then, 10 to 15 minutes later, she hears Lizzie screaming up to her. Come down quick. Father is dead. Someone has come in and killed him. Andrew is lying on the sofa, the left side of his face completely caved in. He'd been struck 11 times, apparently with a hatchet-like instrument. There's no sign of a struggle whatsoever, and his left eye, which dangled free from the skull, had been sliced, which seems to point to the fact that he'd been sleeping when the first blow hit him. Lizzie orders Bridget to go get help, but not the police. 
Instead, she asked for a doctor, although she'd already declared him to be dead. Bridget runs across the street to Dr. Bowen's house, but he was out. So Bridget runs back to the Borden house where she and Lizzie have a short, panicked conversation. Bridget asks Lizzie where she was when the murder happened. Lizzie says she was out in the barn and heard groaning and noticed that the screen door was wide open. Lizzie asks Bridget to get her friend Alice Russell, and Bridget again leaves the house. Adelaide Churchill, a neighbor, sees Bridget running around in a panic and wondering what was happening, noticed Lizzie by the screen door and calls out to her. Lizzie replied, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, please do come over. Someone has murdered father. Deeply alarmed, Adelaide goes over to the Borden house. She describes Lizzie as pale and frightened. She asks Lizzie where her mother is. And Lizzie tells her that Abby had received a note to go and see someone who was ill, but she doesn't know who exactly. She then says she thought she heard her mother-in-law return, but could not be sure. Lizzie is rambling incoherently now, and Mrs. Churchill asks if she would like a doctor, and Lizzie agrees. Mrs. Churchill ran into the backyard and yelled for someone to call a physician, though the police were telephoned instead. There was actually a doctor right next door, a Dr. Kelly, but he was Irish and therefore didn't exist as a doctor in her mind. When Alice Russell saw Bridget rushing to her house in an obvious state of panic, she figured that the Bordens were gravely ill, as Lizzie had told her just the night before, how sick they all were and how she feared they'd been poisoned. Bridget exclaims to Alice that Andrew has been bludgeoned and the two head out running into Dr. Bowen as he returned home, and Dr. Bowen follows them to the house. They find Lizzie again standing by the door, next to the stairs to the basement. It's a strange place to be, as if there were an intruder, it would put you in a dangerous area of the house. Lizzie told Dr. Bowen that her father was hurt and had been stabbed. Dr. Bowen, though he could tell Andrew was dead, still took the pulse and then began to holler. Murder! He has been murdered! Meanwhile, Mrs. Churchill has Lizzie sit in a rocking chair, where she's fanned and seen to by Alice, who begins to run a wet sponge over her forehead. Dr. Bowen, frantic, asks Lizzie if she'd seen anyone. She states no. He asks her where she'd been during the murder. She states in the barn, looking for fishing line sinkers. He asks her where her mother was. She again said Abby had received a note asking her to attend to a sick friend. Lizzie then began to ramble on about family enemies. Dr. Bowen asks for a sheet to cover the body, but Bridget is scared to go upstairs alone, so Mrs. Churchill went with her. It's then that the first police officer arrives, then, horrified, quickly runs away. The coal stove in the kitchen was incredibly hot, and Alice and Mrs. Churchill have Lizzie lie down on the dining room sofa. Lizzie acquiesces and asks that a telegram be sent to her sister Emma in Fairhaven. Dr. Bowen then leaves to telegraph Emma the news of her father's death. Again, Lizzie says that she thought she heard Abby return at some point, this time more emphatically, 
stating she was almost positive she heard Abby come into the house. It seemed unlikely. Wouldn't she have come downstairs during all the commotion? And where could she be? They'd gone up to her bedroom for the sheet to cover Andrew, and she wasn't there. But Lizzie asks Bridget and Mrs. Churchill to please look for her, which they do. Bridget going to the dark guest room and throwing open the closed shutters, which blocked out the light. And as the sunlight poured in, there was Abby, dead on the ground between the bed and the bureau. Mrs. Churchill silently came down the stairs, white as a ghost. Alice asked her, is there another? When Mrs. Churchill confirms with a yes, Lizzie says, I must go to the Oak Grove Cemetery and see about things. But Alice and Mrs. Churchill assure her that an undertaker will take care of everything for her. And it's just odd that your first thought after the murder of your parents is the funeral arrangements. When officers Darty, Wixon, and Malay finally arrive at the house, a huge crowd has already gathered, and they have to shove their way through. They're soon followed by Dr. Bowen, returning from Western Union, where he had telegraphed Emma the news, and accompanied by the city physician, Dr. Dolan, who he'd run into on the errand. The three officers and two doctors then set to examining the bodies. Then Officer Malay went to question Lizzie. He asked her if there were any axes or hatchets in the house. Lizzie told him, yes, they were both, and that Bridget would show him where they were, which she did, taking him to the basement where there were two axes as well as a few hatchets. Officer Malay takes them as evidence. At this point, that old rascal Uncle John returned to the house. Seeing all the mayhem, he retired to the backyard where he began to eat pears off the tree. There's a lot of pear eating in this story. Yes. Finally, Assistant Marshal John Fleet arrives. He's the highest ranking officer. Officer Fleet questioned Lizzie, which appeared to annoy her. He asked her where she was during the murders, and she said she was in the barn, in the loft, getting sinkers for her fishing pole. It would later be discovered that Lizzie had no fishing pole and was not known to have ever fished. When asked who could have done this, she says a mysterious man had been lurking at the house weeks earlier, arguing with her father on the front porch about what she didn't know. She says he looked like a farm laborer. She also told him how the family had been sick and says they may have been poisoned. When asked about her mother, Abby, Lizzie states coldly, She is not my mother. She is my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. Fleet, who is kind of like a super cop, he goes to inspect the house for himself. He looks over the hatchets and axes, then asks where they'd come from and goes to inspect the basement. There, rustling around, he finds a box of dusty tools in which is a hatchet head, its handle obviously recently sawed off. It wasn't dusty like the other tools, but covered in white ash, as if it had been washed, then dipped, still wet, in ashes to disguise it. And while the dusty tools were only covered on their exposed side, the hatchet was covered 
on both sides. If it had been the murder weapon, blood could easily be washed off the iron hatchet, but would have remained on the wooden handle, which was now missing. Very suspicious. Officer Medley then goes to the loft in the barn, where Lizzie claims she was during the murder of her father. The dust is obviously untouched, and while there was a bucket of scrap lead that could have been used for sinkers in the lower area of the barn, there was none in the loft. Careful not to disturb the thick dust in the loft, he returned to the house and reported his findings to Fleet. Unfortunately, when they later went to again examine the loft, other officers had already gone up into it and disturbed the dust. A very brief search of the house is done. Lizzie telling them to make it quick. That quote, All this is making me sick. Dr. Dolan, who was a police doctor, studied the crime scene and came to a logical conclusion about just how covered in blood the killer would be. Abby's murderer had stood astride her body, but her blood had spurted forward. There was no blood on the bedspread beside her, and only the skirting board of the wall received any blood so the killer wouldn't have been in the line of the spurting blood. Andrew's murder had caused blood to spurt back against the door, but there was not a single drop on the table right next to his head. He also noticed that Andrew's Prince Albert frock coat was wedged between the pillow and afghan, awkwardly, as if the murderer had maybe shoved it there. Andrew was meticulous and steadfast. He'd never jam his coat there like that leading Dr. Dolan to speculate the murderer had used the coat as a means of shielding themselves from blood splatter, most likely wearing it front to back. He tried to relay this information that the killer most likely would have very, very little blood on them, but because he was Irish, he was considered biased and untrustworthy, and his observations were met with some skepticism. The bodies, which had been moved a bit by police, are then repositioned and photographed. In the photograph, Andrew is wearing boots, which contradicts Bridget's statement that she helped him remove them and put slippers on his feet. This is often cited as an example of her lying. But the truth is that when the bodies were repositioned, his shoes were put back on him, as his bare ankles were seen as obscene or too revealing. Victorian sensibilities. It's also apparent that Andrew had been wearing slippers because the first officer on scene had noted that his ankles looked thin. <laughs> They're fucking obsessed with ankles. It's so weird. It's very strange. After the photographs, the bodies are laid out on the dining room table and covered in sheets. And this is the old school. Just throw the corpses up on the dining room table. That's how they used to do it back in the day. And uh, actually, my father told me that's what they did with my grandmother when she died in the 1930s. Emma, having received the telegram, eventually returns, frantic. Bridget says she is too terrified to sleep in the house and spends the night across the street with Dr. Bowen's servant girl. But Lizzie's friend, Alice, stays there with the two sisters. Newspaper headlines the next day ran, Horrible butchery and mutilated beyond recognition. And they say, Lizzie is the main suspect. The crowd outside the house has now grown to over a thousand. So many gather at the house to stare, workers walking out of work to gawk that the mills had to close down. 
true crime. People just can't get enough of it. True that. Dr. Dolan returns and conducts an autopsy right there in the house on what are called cooling boards, long planks of wood with holes in them to circulate air. He removes Andrew and Abby's stomachs, and they were sent to chemists at Harvard to see if there were any traces of poison. When he's done, he puts the bodies back on the dining room table. He describes Abby Borden in his autopsy report, quote, The head was chopped into ribbons of flesh and the skull broken open in several places. The most ghastly thing I have ever seen, end quote. He also cites a gash in her shoulder blade that seemed to point to a hatchet being the weapon used. The police, too, returned to the Borden home, this time to conduct a more thorough search of the house, looking for a blood-stained dress. Yes, they're already focusing on Lizzie as the most likely culprit. Not only was Lizzie the only one in the house during the murders, she had a clear motive. Her father was elderly. He hadn't too many years left, and when he died, the family fortune would go to Abby, who Lizzie despised. With Abby gone, Lizzie and her sister would be the sole heirs to the vast fortune, equal to roughly $15 million in today's money. During the search, they found a skirt, which would be worn inside of a dress, with a single drop of blood on it. Lizzie explained this away as menstrual blood. In the Victorian era, men were very squeamish about such things. Also kind of in today's era. (laughs) But a doctor did confirm that Lizzie had been on her period during the time of the murder, and bloody sanitary napkins were found in the basement, soaking in water. But it was odd that the drop of blood was on the outside of the skirt, not the inside. They still found no actual dress with blood on it. While the police were focusing on Lizzie as the murderer, the general public had set its eyes on old Uncle John, the stranger in town who was a butcher by trade. As John proceeded to the post office, a mob began to follow him, suddenly shouting, Lynch him! Lynch him! Luckily, some police officers were able to break up the scene, escort Uncle John back to the Borden home, and instruct him not to leave again for his own safety. The day before the funeral, Dr. Bowen came by around midnight and found Lizzie to be in rough shape. So he shot her up with some morphine to calm her nerves. The next day, on August 6th, Lizzie prepared for the funeral, wearing a black lace dress and a dark bonnet, and walked down to where the bodies lay in coffins. Andrew was posed with his head to the side so that you could not see the savagely mutilated and caved-in section. She cried beside the casket and kissed his cheek. 3,000 people gathered outside to watch. Victorian fashion dictated what must be worn while in a state of mourning, and Lizzie was declared to be lacking, wearing the wrong fabric and veil. Each stage of grief had to be accompanied by certain jewelry and clothing. Black silk lined with black crepe was supposed to be worn, not lace, which was seen as too flamboyant for mourning. Then, after a set period of time, the crepe removed, a process called slighting the mourning. 
the color going from black to gray to mauve and eventually to white in stages. If you lost your spouse, you were expected to wear full grieving attire for two years. If you lost your parents, you were expected to wear it for one year. So the fitted lace dress caused further allegations against Lizzie. Though the uptight Victorian public declared her clothing to be of a poor choice, she did appear to be in a state of utter grief. She had to lean on the undertaker. And the New York Times even wrote about how she was trembling. The bodies were taken to Oak Grove Cemetery. And in Victorian fashion, Lizzie and Emma stayed in the carriage as their father and stepmother were lowered into the ground, as it was believed women couldn't handle the grief. But, unbeknownst to the Borden sisters, the bodies were actually put into a receiving vault so that old Dr. Nolan could later do a better autopsy. Two weeks later, and this is during a record heat wave, mind you, the autopsy would then be conducted. It was quite scandalous, but we'll get into that later. On Sunday, August 7th, 1892, after two police searches for a bloody dress, Alice Russell observed Lizzie calmly go to the coal stove with a dress, then begin to shred it and feed it to the fire. When Alice asked why she was burning the dress, she said it was because it had gotten green paint on it. Alice was alarmed by her actions and told her, quote, I wouldn't let anyone see you do that, end quote, as they were right in front of the window. Lizzie then moved to the side where she couldn't be seen from the window, where police were actually guarding the house from the mob of spectators, and continued to burn the dress piece by piece. Bridget wanted to leave to return to Ireland, saying she was terrified to stay there, but the police wouldn't let her and brought her in for questioning. Bridget told them that she had wanted to leave the house many times, but only stayed out of her loyalty to Abby. And now that Abby was dead, she did not want to be there anymore, and she would leave the first chance she got, which she actually did. For the police, it was a no-brainer. As we said, not only was Lizzie the only one who could possibly have committed the crime, she also had a clear financial motive. But serving Lizzie with an arrest warrant was a very delicate matter. At first, the mayor came to the house, requesting no one leave, to which Lizzie replied, quote, Why is someone in the house suspected? End quote. And it was then that Lizzie was informed she was the prime suspect. Part three, inquest and trial. When Lizzie was finally served with her arrest warrant, she became so distraught, she began to violently gag and vomit, and Dr. Bowen was again called to administer more morphine. She was brought out to a carriage which was swarmed by a mob, the police having to push them away. She was taken to a train station, also mobbed with looky-loos. Each stop along the way had throngs of onlookers eager to catch a glimpse of the accused axe murderer. Eventually, the train arrived in the town of Taunton, and Lizzie was taken to a jail cell. But Lizzie received preferential treatment. Her meals, five-star, were brought from a local hotel. She was given a down feather pillow, her own rocking chair, and stacks of books. Gifts of fruit and flour also adorned the small cell, and Lizzie was allowed to walk the grounds escorted. Her sister Emma released a statement saying, 
I firmly believe in my sister's innocence. She will have my full support and cooperation because I am certain she deserves it. Lizzie had a great deal of supporters. Congregationalist ministers declared God would vindicate and glorify Lizzie. The WCTU supported her, for how could a teetotaler have committed a brutal crime? Women's rights organization also took up her cause, for at the time, women, by their credo, were not just less stupid than men, they were of innate moral superiority. Women intellectuals and journalists like feminist Lucy Stone wrote articles, and newspapers were flooded with letters to the editor, all supporting Lizzie. And the writers were writing, as they will do, and having a lot of fun with it. This is really wild. This writer named Tricky, actual name, Tricky, wrote a novella and sold it for fact to the Boston Globe. This one had it all. Sex, violence, family intrigue. He claimed through various witnesses, including Bridget, that Lizzie was pregnant and Andrew had been heard shouting, I will know the name of the man who got you into trouble. And Uncle John was strongly hinted at being the father. In this nonfiction, quote unquote, novella, another eyewitness had looked into the Borden's window to see Lizzie with a bathing cap on, waving an axe like a wild woman. And on October 9th, the Boston Globe published the account with the headline, Lizzie's Secrets. Lizzie's lawyers went nuts. They threatened to sue, and it took just a scant fact check to find nearly all the witnesses were made up and completely fictional. And the Boston Globe was forced to print a front-page retraction. But they'd sold their papers. And Tricky, having been paid for his scandalous story of outright lies, rushed to the New Bedford jail, cornered Bridget, and offered her a cut of his pay if she'd not deny the story and run off to Canada with him. But the Irish woman refused to go along with his scheme, and Tricky was indicted for attempt to tamper with a government witness, but not before he was able to flee to Canada, where he got hit by a train and died. <laughs> oh, poor Tricky. Shouldn't have been writing that stuff. This scandalous bit of buffoonery actually furthered Lizzie's case, giving credence to all who called the allegations against her lies. Somewhere along the line, an infamous rhyme was constructed around the then popular song, Ta-ra-ra-boom-dee-ay. Some say by a corner newspaper seller hawking the latest edition, but it was soon picked up by children and can be heard to this day. I'm going to relay it here the way that I always heard it and the, the way kids uh, seem to have always relayed it themselves, not with the Ta-ra-ra-boom-dee-ay tune, but here we go. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she'd seen what she had done, gave her father 41. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him in the head. Up in heaven, he will swing. On the gallows, she will swing. <laughs> nice. When, when I was doing research, my 10-year-old daughter asked me what I was reading about. I said, Lizzie Borden. And she said, oh, the lady from the Jump Rope song. So, yup. I guess kids are still saying it to this day. Yet, the little bit of verse is wrong on many accounts. She only gave Abby, who was actually her stepmother, not her actual mother, 19 wax. 
And her father only got 11. And as we'll see, Lizzie never swung from any gallows. A preliminary hearing was held August 25th, 1892. The courthouse was standing room only. It was presided over by a Judge Blaisdell, a kindly old man who'd known Lizzie since childhood. The prosecution was livid that this judge, a family friend, was to preside over the hearing, calling it scandalous and indecent, and proclaiming, By all the laws of human nature, you cannot help but being influenced. But the hearing went on. Lizzie was questioned for three days, her answers weird and contradictory. When asked where she was when her father arrived home, she gave three separate answers, stating she was in the kitchen, then stating she was upstairs in her room, then saying she was on the steps coming downstairs, also insisting she'd been in the loft of the barn in the intense heat of the day, eating pears and searching for fishing sinkers when her father was murdered though she had no fishing pole and was never known to have gone fishing before. The judge said, It would be a pleasure if I could say, Lizzie, I judge you probably not guilty and you may go home. But upon character of the evidence present through the witnesses who have been so closely examined, there is only one thing to be done. The old judge stopped. He pressed his lips together Tears began to flow from his eyes as he said, So there is only one thing to do, painful as it may be. The judgment of the court is that you are probably guilty, and you were ordered to wait the action of the superior court. The judge then began to weep. But Lizzie was obstinate, later saying, It is better I get my judgment in a higher court as then the exoneration will be complete. On June 5th, 1893, the trial started, and it was hailed as the trial of the century. No spectators were allowed as all available seats went to the press. George Robinson was hired as Lizzie's attorney. He'd actually been governor of Massachusetts once and was incredibly adept at legal proceedings. He charged a staggering $25,000, an insane amount of money at the time. He set up the theory that a person had snuck in while Bridget was talking to a neighbor. He got all of the inquest testimony thrown out as well because Lizzie had not been given notice of her right to remain silent. It was a huge win, destroying the prosecution's use of her contradictory statements and leaving only circumstantial evidence. The prosecutor, William Moody, was young, and it was his first murder trial, and he set out to prove himself. He pointed out the arguments and tension in the family, the rumors of poisoning. It was 93 degrees in the courtroom. As prosecutor Moody went on about how nothing had been taken from the home, ruling out robbery, there was no struggle during which Lizzie fainted, dropping her fan, her head rolling back. This fainting spell worked extremely well in her favor. She was seen as a diminutive lady, and the drama cast serious doubt on her ability to commit such a crime in the eyes of the public. Photographer James Walsh was called to the stand to discuss the photographs of the bodies he had taken. And then old Dr. Dolan was called to the stand to discuss the autopsies he'd conducted after the funeral. 
detailing how the bodies have been sitting for weeks in the hot summer weather and decomposed before he started. Dr. Dolan then told the court he'd removed their heads and boiled them to remove the flesh and study the fractures in the skull. And he had the skulls right there in court. The bodies had been buried without their heads and the skulls were now evidence. Jesus Christ, I forgot this part <laughs> of the story. I, I, I had to have known it, but I feel like I don't remember this. This is crazy. And people were rightfully shocked, horrified, and disgusted. Newspapers opined the desecration of the corpses was even worse than the murder itself. It's fucking crazy to bury the bodies with no heads. I mean, fucking hell. Surprise! <laughs> I kept Look who we got. To, yeah. I kept these to make a point. <laughs> oh, Lizzie and Emma were obviously very upset by the desecration of their father and stepmother's bodies. It was a bold move. And, you know, it probably didn't sit well with the jury. And the chemical results of the stomachs from Harvard came back. There were no signs of poison. The sickness and vomiting the family had struggled with had most likely been caused by the leftover swordfish and three-day-old mutton. And even reading that sentence makes me want to puke. Yeah. What if I mentioned the chamber pot? (laughs) Yeah. And the the puke, the puking outside next to the chamber pot remains like it's just a. I see him like right under the pear tree, too. (laughs) Right. That everyone's eating from all day. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, uh, but the stomach contents, they did confirm the blood coagulation evidence, the digestion process showing that Abby had, in fact, been murdered. 90 minutes to two hours before Andrew. Prosecution was quick to point out that no one had been inside the house during this period but Lizzie Borden, causing her lawyer to stand up and shout, Lizzie Borden did not commit this crime. It was the work of an insane man or of a person whose heart was black as hell itself. I demand her release, your honor. When they don't show in incriminating circumstances, don't put the stigma of guilt upon this woman. Weird as she has been with a past character beyond reproach. God grant wisdom to decide. When Lizzie's friend Alice was called to the stand to discuss the burning of the dress, she emphasized that she saw no blood on the dress at all, just green paint. Of course, there would be very little blood, as proven by Dr. Dolan. And Robinson was quick to use racism in his defense of Lizzie as well, noting how most of the police were Irish and Catholic, as was Bridget and crazy Dr. Dolan, who'd decapitated the corpses and boiled the skulls. (laughs) Young Prosecutor Moody was no match for the older, experienced defense attorney, Robinson. Reporters called it a pigeon-shooting match where Robinson shot down every bird Moody tossed up. Sure enough, when Prosecutor Moody tried to bring in evidence that Lizzie had attempted to purchase poison and bring the pharmacist to the stand, Robinson was able to have it withheld from evidence, a huge victory for the defense. When a medical examiner displayed how the hatchet fit perfectly into the wounds on the skulls, Lizzie grew so upset she had to be removed from the court further solidifying her as a sensitive woman incapable of the crimes. 
and the defense was sure to ask each and every witness if Lizzie and her father had a close, loving relationship, and every single witness testified yes, Lizzie often breaking down in tears over this. Robinson also called her either Miss Lizzie or the girl, endearing her with the jury. Lizzie's sister Emma would be on the stand more than any other witness and waxed on about the loving relationship Lizzie had with Andrew, how he wore a gold ring she had given him. But the real kicker was she testified that it was her who asked Lizzie to burn the dress as it had been ruined. Though Lizzie committed the deed, it was her elder sister Emma, whom Lizzie saw as a mother figure, who demanded the ruined dress be burned. And in my opinion, this is a total lie. This family is so fucking frugal, they sit in the dark to not waste kerosene. They saved newspaper for toilet paper, hoarded magazines. The barn was full of boxes of junk they refused to throw away. So why would they burn good material that could be used for cleaning or even toilet paper, it's it's softer than newspaper. Good point. At 324, Tuesday, June 20th, 1893, when the jury left to deliberate, it would take them only one hour to return with a verdict of not guilty. Lizzie was acquitted and free to go. Emma and Lizzie inherited their father's a vast fortune and went on to buy their dream home, a 14-bedroom mansion on the hill, the prestigious neighborhood they'd always longed to live in. They splurged on all the amenities their father had refused them, modern plumbing, a telephone, and not one, two, or three, but four servants for the two sisters. They called their mansion on the hill Maplecroft, and Lizzie started going by Elizabeth Andrews as a means of losing the stigma associated with her name. But it didn't work. She was a pariah. At church, no one would sit near her. Children threw eggs at the house and shouted the infamous poem at her whenever they saw her. And in 1905, Emma moved out, relocating to New Hampshire and saying, The happenings at the French Street house that caused me to leave... I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. Emma would remain in New Hampshire until her death, and she and Lizzie would never make amends. What it was exactly that caused this rift in their relationship isn't known. On June 1st, 1927, at 66, Lizzie Borden died of myocarditis, a heart infection which inflames the muscles. At her request, she was buried at her father's feet in Oak Grove Cemetery. Doesn't it seem weird she was requested to be buried at his feet? I don't know. The whole thing's just weird. Yeah, yeah. Her grave marker, a small thing set off to the side of her father's large and imposing gravestone and set at a strange angle, reads simply, Lisbeth. And Emma died just 10 days later and was buried there next to her sister. Part four, the theories. <laughs> okay, let's get into some of the wild theories behind this case. The first one is that Lizzie suffered from epilepsy 
and was in a blackout during the murders and didn't remember it. In her book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight, Victoria Lincoln puts up compelling evidence for this. She states how Lizzie was known to have spells four or five times a year, always during her menstrual cycle, and explains how psychomotor epilepsy, which is epilepsy of the temporal lobe, much different than petite mal seizures, can cause one to go through a brownout. It's a kind of sleepwalking, committing strange actions they can't remember. And she gives instances, one of a man awakening, digging a hole in his yard with no memory of why or how he even got there. Apparently, transient epileptic amnesia can be induced during a woman's period, and Lizzie was in fact going through hers at the time of the murder. Transient epileptic amnesia is a rare neurological condition affecting memory-related structures within the brain. To this day, health experts do not fully understand it. But the brownout, or sleepwalking period, never lasts more than an hour. So even if it did explain the murder of Abby, it doesn't explain the murder of Andrew. Then there are theories that Lizzie was having an incestual affair with her father, and that him wearing her high school ring was some kind of bizarre proof of this. I find all this ridiculous. Andrew Borden was so prim and proper, with strong Victorian sensibilities, and the house was so lacking in any privacy. Surely Bridget, Abby, Emma, someone would have noticed it. Gossip was just rampant in that town. It would have leaked out. I'm sure Bridget would have said something to the other servant girl next door. There was really no keeping secrets. Try as they might. Then there's the rumors that Lizzie was a lesbian and carrying on an affair with Bridget, who helped in the murders. Even if Lizzie was a lesbian, I don't think she'd be acting on those instincts, and surely not in the house with the servant girl. Like we just said, the house afforded no privacy. Everyone was aware what the others were up to. Emma had to walk through Lizzie's bedroom to get to her own room. That's very inconvenient for an affair. Hmm. Besides, it was Abby who was friendly with Bridget, not Lizzie, who rudely called her Maggie. When Bridget wanted to leave, it was Abby who begged her to stay who gave her a raise so she wouldn't leave. If anything, Bridget was afraid of Lizzie. That makes more sense than that they were lovers. Later in life, Lizzie would become good friends with actress Nance O'Neill, and there were rumors the two had an affair, and that this was the reason Emma moved out. Maybe these rumors are true, maybe they're not. But it doesn't mean Lizzie was sleeping with her servant, who she looked at as below her in both class and race. And as for the lack of any blood on Lizzie, rumors abound that she committed the murders naked and in an act of premeditation. This is sensationalism meant to sell books and movies. It was famously portrayed in the 1975 made-for-television film The Legend of Lizzie Borden, where Elizabeth Montgomery of bewitched fame plays Lizzie. It's uh, actually a pretty good movie if you like 70s made for television movies give it a watch it was also later used in the 2018 movie lizzie which we mentioned earlier in which not only lizzie played by chloe savini is running around the house naked but also the servant bridget played by Kristen stewart is for some reason nude as well double the nudity double the fun 
this movie just throws all the rumors together and has lots of shots of Chloe Savini and Kristen Stewart making out. And I honestly, I like this movie a lot. I think it's historically incredibly inaccurate on a multitude of levels. We're just not going to even get into, <laughs> but uh, it's fun, fun movie. And lastly, the most ridiculous and stupid theory of it all, but still my favorite a family curse and demonic possession. <laughs> there is a 2022 quote unquote documentary about this called The Curse of Lizzie Borden. Ghost hunter Dave Schrader assembles a team of paranormal experts to investigate whether a dark family curse led to the murder. They run into a few unexplained ghosts, contact everyone through various paranormal means, talking to Uncle John, Andrew, and a few demons, then hold a seance and speak to Lizzie Borden herself. In the film, Sam Butrusis, who claims to be a direct descendant of Lizzie Borden, says there is a curse on the family. He accuses old Uncle John of engaging in occult practices and says there was a long history of witchcraft in his lineage, dating back to the 1700s, resulting in a family curse. Though where he gets any evidence that John Morse ever dabbled in black magic, I don't know. There's, there's no proof that I can find of it. Seems pretty far-fetched for prim and proper Victorian period. The documentary claims an evil entity lurks in the Borden bloodline, which can take possession of a body and turn the victim into a cold-blooded killer. They actually offer up some interesting proof, citing the story of Sarah Cornell, a distant cousin of Lizzie's. Sarah Cornell was a young mill worker from Fall River, Massachusetts, who was found dead on December 20th, 1832, hanging from a haystack in Tiverton, Rhode Island. The circumstances surrounding her demise were immediately surrounded by speculation and suspicion. And during her autopsy, it was revealed she was pregnant. And the ensuing investigation uncovered an illicit affair with a Methodist preacher named Reverend Ephraim Avery, who most considered the guilty party. And it led to a sensational trial. Avery was ultimately charged with Cornell's murder, but like Lizzie, he too was acquitted. This is actually a very fascinating case, one I'd like to study more, but she was just an innocent murder victim, not an actual murderer. Then there was Eliza Darling Borden. She lived right next door to the infamous Borden house, though 30 years before Andrew bought it. She murdered two of her children by throwing them down a well and then slit her own throat. She was technically a Borden, as she'd married into the family, but there was no blood relation, so I'm not sure how she'd be part of a family curse, unless you can marry into one. But don't worry, because during the seance, they were able to close the evil portal to hell forever and set all the spirits free, banishing the demons to the underworld and relinquishing the Borden curse. Yay! I really enjoyed this documentary, if you want to call it that. Though it is utterly ridiculous, I found it comedy just really really silly and far-fetched but hilarious nonetheless though i don't think that was their intention and of course the borden house is said to be haunted as hell 
A website reads, quote, among the paranormal events people have experienced here are doors opening and closing on their own, apparitions and being touched. There's also an overall spooky feeling people get when inside the house, end quote. Fun stuff. I'd love to visit. You've been there. Uh, You ever see anything spooky? You know, I do have to say, and I'm not like, a, you know, me, I'm a horror lover. I love the ghost stories, but I'm kind of like a, I'm a hopeful skeptic. Like, I don't actually believe in any supernatural shit, but I'm like open to it. And my husband and I did stay at the Borden house. And there is very much like a weird vibe there. I don't know if it was just because of the house drawing like the it was the energy of the other people that you're staying with because it's essentially a B&B or it was at the time that I visited it's changed owners again since that time um but yeah it drew like a very strange crowd when we went like so in the middle of the night we heard somebody like essentially being like ah, 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 ah. and in the morning like come to find out somebody that was there and this it was like not a joke either like he was like oh is that like somebody had has night terrors regularly and his wife was like yeah he had some night terrors i whacked him a couple times and he stopped like it wasn't (laughs) like they they did it to like freak people out she was just like yeah happens all the time i guess maybe we should have said something but i whacked him and he stopped and then there was this other guy who was like a a man child he was like an older you know like a 50s man who had like the demeanor of a child and came with his own creepy doll collection and Ouija board. Yeah. And was going to like try to invoke some creepy shit while he stayed there that night. Um, But I will say like we stayed there and I woke up in the middle of the night and I just like, I, I didn't get scared, but I had this strange feeling of just like, I don't, let me put it this way. I kind of woke up and I was like uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, like, I'm not unhappy that we are only staying here one night. That's the Mm -hmm. best way to describe it. Like, I was like, this is an experience. It was weird. I'm cool with not staying here another night. There's like some weird vibes. And the bedroom into the bedroom into the bedroom thing is very strange. Yeah, right. No hallways. Huh. All right. Well, here's how I think the Lizzie Borden murder went down. Personally. Let's hear it. Okay. So Lizzie had the murder of Abby on her mind and it was building into an uncontrollable rage. She tried to buy poison, which is true, and started spreading rumors that the family were being poisoned in what I think was a harebrained attempt to somehow justify it or like divert the blame to someone else in some weird way she wasn't very bright but the pharmacist he wouldn't sell her the poison so that morning she went down to the basement where she could clearly hear bridget talking to the next door neighbor's serving girl and she saw this was her chance there was a hatchet sitting right there her sister was out of town bridget was occupied her father was out for his daily long walk Uncle John was off with his family. So she slipped into the dress that was already stained with green paint, grabbed a bundle of bedding, hiding the hatchet within it, and then walked up through the kitchen and living room, then upstairs to the guest room where Abby 
was making that bed. Abby turned and saw her there with bedding in her arms and didn't think anything of it, allowing Lizzie to walk right up to her before pulling out the hatchet and delivering the first blow to the head, which knocked her unconscious face down on the floor where Lizzie then delivered the fatal blows. She then goes back to the basement, washed up in the sink there where there was already bloody menstrual rags, stashed the dress, went upstairs and unlocked the screen door where Bridget encountered her. Bridget just assumed she'd been in the, been in the kitchen, but this is where the steps from the basement lead to. I believe Lizzie was then going to quickly run off and establish an alibi, but was surprised when her father came home early. That laugh that Bridget heard as she helped Andrew open the door, I believe it was more a squeal of astonishment, more like an, oh shit, father is home. So Andrew comes in, lays down for a nap. Bridget goes upstairs. Lizzie standing there, ironing her handkerchiefs, and she's just overcome. Without an alibi, she knows her father, who is already deeply suspicious of her and believes her to be a thief, is going to assume she murdered Abby when the body is soon to be discovered. So in a moment of pure insanity, she grabs his frock coat, puts it on, outside facing front, like an apron, and she does him in. She doesn't do it out of hatred. She just doesn't see any other way out of it. She doesn't see any other choice. She's exhibited signs of antisocial behavior all her life. She's a thief. She's a liar. And then she pretends she's just discovered the body and sends Bridget away and is then discovered by the neighbor hovering by the screen door. Again, this screen door is right next to the steps of the basement. So while Bridget was gone, she'd rush to the basement, wash the hatchet, and seeing that the blood stains wouldn't come off the wooden handle, cut it off, then dip the head in ashes to disguise it, threw the handle in the fire, which, remember, was said to be roaring despite the fact that it was a record-hot day. The police searched the house for a bloody dress, but she knows that house inside out. She's got it well hidden, and they never did mention or discover the dress covered in green paint that she later burns. So she burns the bloody dress, which probably, as we talked about, doesn't have that much blood on it. I mean, I don't know. This is the only scenario that makes sense to me. And if it's true, in the end, it worked. She inherited the fortune, got her house on the hill with running water, a telephone, and four servants. What do you think? Sound about right, maybe? I like it. I can stand behind all that. It sounds... I mean, I've read a lot of both, like, true crime nonfiction about this case and, like, fictionalized retellings that spin it in all different ways to kind of do essentially, like, what you just did. Like, try to spin it different ways to to make it work. And this this doesn't really contain any... I mean, you know, you make little jumps, but they're logical. So, yeah, I mean, I would buy this. I still like Chloe Savini and Kristen Stewart making out best though. Why does that not surprise me? Um, (laughs) I feel like I started that movie and then didn't finish it. Not because it wasn't good. I just like, I don't know. Like I watched it on a night where I was planning to watch it in two parts and I just didn't get around to finishing it. I should. I also really liked, um, was it See See What I Have Done? That was a a novel, um, like a 
fictionalized retelling of Lizzie Borden. It had like a pigeon on the front cover. It was a came out a couple years ago. Um, and then, have you ever read or at least heard of Sherry Priest? Do you know that author? Yeah, I know the, the name, yeah. So she has two Lizzie Borden books. The first one is Maplecroft, and the second one mm. is Chapelweight. Um, and she mashes up Lizzie Borden fact and legend with Lovecraft. So the Ooh, the fun. the and I don't want to give anything away in case listeners want to check it out because it's really cool and really fun. She essentially offers up another possible explanation for what happened and that maybe Lizzie was trying to stamp out something else with her hatchet with her hatchet strikes, uh, something that came from the nearby sea. So you should check those out. They're fun. Sounds like fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the story of Lizzie Borden. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. And you know we want to hear from you. You got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Shoot us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week.